Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from the Find Your Great Work interview series. Here's your host, MBS. So the other day I was in my friend's house in England and she is an obsessive collector of business books, most of which she's actually never read, but she loves books. And whilst I was waiting for her to uh, get ready, we were going out for a drink, I picked up this book I'd never heard of it before. It's by a guy called Dan Coyle and it's called The Talent Code. And I started reading it and I went, this is a pretty damn fine book. It's... Um, it's a little bit like Malcolm Gladwell's book, but I think just a little bit better because it's a little bit more practical and it's a little bit more connected to not just why 10,000 hours grows expertise, but actually more specifically, it's not just 10,000 hours, it's how you spend your 10,000 hours makes the difference between average and, and talent. And so I'm pretty excited to be speaking to Dan. He is an accomplished author. He wrote the New York Times bestseller, Lance Armstrong's War. He's written for Sports Illustrated, the New York Times Magazine, and a bunch of other great magazines as well. And I'm pretty excited to have him on the line. So, Dan, thanks for being on the call. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's nice to be here. And uh, do you want to add anything to that introduction so people have a sense of who you are, or, or did I do a good enough job giving people a sense of that? Uh, I think your talent in, in, in giving that was, uh, was really impressive. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks. Yeah, lots of deep, slow practice on that. Um, <laughs> the, the subtitle of the book is wonderful. I mean, the book is wonderful. I'll say that straight up. I thought it was a fantastic read. And not just the first little bit, but the whole way through. And that's also a rarity in business books. Um, you know, there's actual kind of lean content throughout. The, the subtitle is Greatness Isn't Born, It's Grown. It's, it's a kind of one of those wonderful, intriguing, curiosity-provoking subtitles. So tell us, what, what do you mean by that? Set it up for us. Well, it was about curiosity in the beginning. You know, I started right. investigating talent hotbeds, these, these strange little places that produce impossible numbers, statistically mm. impossible numbers of talented people. And they ranged. You know, some were uh, from businesses, some were from sports, some were from art. It began with a tennis club, actually, outside of Moscow right. that had produced more top 20 players in the entire United States. And they had one indoor court. And uh, by traveling to these places and looking for the patterns, the patterns of behavior, the patterns uh, in the environment, the patterns of motivation, uh, what I began to find and what the science that I investigated uh, underlined is that this is not a question of possession. It's a question of construction. And these places have the same kind of blueprint. And when, we, when I say in the subtitle that talent is, isn't born, it's grown, it refers to the, the patterns that we see in these places, which is right. of slow – um, you mentioned 10,000 hours, um, behavior, uh, yeah. where you're actually constructing in, in your brain these, these circuits, these, uh, these wires. You're connecting up your brain to work faster and better. And that is about growth. It's not about something you're born with. It's about the way you approach each day and the way you approach each repetition, the way you approach each challenge, each reach. And, um, and so it ends up being a, I don't know if you'd call it, uh, you know, almost more of a gardening book in some ways right. than, a, than a book about the magic of talent. Um, there is a magic there, but it's a, ta it's a magic that is, uh, that's earned uh, each day. Well, let's start with some of the, the science behind it, because I want to talk about the, the value of deep practice, and I want to talk about ignition and master coaching, the three kind of major sections of the book. But, you know, in some ways it, it at a real neuroscience level, boils down to this substance called myelin. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you bet. It's, um, it, is, it is interesting and not to, not to get too sciencey, but it is, it is fairly simple. You know, from our 
biology classes, we probably remember the term myelin sheath, uh, myelin, M-Y-E-L-I-N, and it's it refers to this substance that wraps around the wires of your brain. It's insulation, basically. Right. I mean, the wires in our life and our electrical cords are insulated, and our brains are built the same way. You don't want the voltage to go all over the place. You want it to get delivered to one spot and not leak out. And for years, myelin was thought to be inert because it doesn't look like it does anything. It looks like it's just insulation. But in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a series of incredible discoveries, really, that, that are showing that myelin growth is related to practice, that when you practice in certain ways, you're actually growing the myelin more thickly around your brain. You're wrapping it, those, those circuits that you're firing with more electrical tape. And this, of course, makes the signal inside that wire move faster, move more accurately, and the, the differences are massive. You know, an unmyelinated axon in your brain will move two miles an hour, but you can grow this stuff 50 layers deep and make that impulse move 200 miles an hour. Right. And so they do these scans where they'll have people play piano or, or, or learn how to read, and they'll measure the myelin in those circuits, and they will show a growth that's proportional to the hours of practice. In other words, every hour you practice in certain ways, you can earn more insulation. You can increase the speed, increase the accuracy. You know, they say practice makes perfect, but what the neuroscience is showing is that practice makes myelin and myelin makes perfect. Nice. Yeah, really nice. So let's talk about practice because that's important. But you know, one of the things I thought was most fascinating about the book is it's like it's not any old practice. It's not it's not just and this would describe my my terrible attempt at learning piano when I was a kid, you know, kind of sitting there going, I've got 25 minutes to endure, so I'll just kind of mindlessly go through the routines and just hope something comes out of it the other end. Yes. Um, right. you, you, right. There's a whole other type and form of practice that you talk about, deep practice. So can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, practice is this great word. It's, it's, it's incredibly, fantastically vague. You know, it's a word like... <laughs> You know, food. I'm going to go eat some food. I'm going to go do some practice. It's yeah. like, well, there are, in fact, a lot of different sorts of foods you can eat. And what the talent hotbeds show us and what the science shows us is that there are as many varieties of practice. Mm -hmm. Some are very nutritious and some are junk food. And um, what I saw in the talent hotbeds was a very particular form of practice, which you could call deep practice, deliberate practice is another word for it. And what it refers to is an intensive reach beyond your current abilities an intensive reach beyond your current ability. So you're, you're on the edge, you're staggering a little bit, you're making mistakes and fixing them. Yeah. Now, and, and that's a strange sort of paradoxical thing because to make a mistake, we often think of it as a verdict. We often think of it as uh, a sign that we're not born to do something. But in the talent hotbeds, you constantly see, whether it's, whether it's math, music, sport, you constantly see this expression on, on people's faces as they're practicing. And it sounds sort of strange to say, but it, it's the face of Clint Eastwood. You know, it's, <laughs> it's this, this make my day squint, the face of somebody who's reaching for something they really right. want. Fingernails are scraping against it and they're reaching again. And it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be emotionally because yeah. you're making mistakes and you're doing it again. But when you look at what they're doing, that's what you see. And also when you think about it, think about it, you need to build a new connection in your brain. You, you don't have the ability to play that song on the piano that make that golf swing or, or interpret that, that financial table. Yeah. So you have to build a new connection and that reaching and that struggle and that making a mistake and fixing it is the way that we're built to do that. You know, that's how we make new connections in our brain and it feels funny, feels bad at times, but that's, that's what deep practice is that intensive reaching and repetition. And that's why when we see, you mentioned the 10,000 hours earlier, when we see great performers across any, 
domain. That's why we constantly see these massive amounts of practice because they've been using that construction time to build faster, better, more accurate connections in their brains. You know, I saw recently the uh, guy who wrote a book, which you may know of, called Moonwalking with Einstein. Mm, uh, yeah. And it talks in a similar way about how do you increase your capacity. And, and, the, and the story he tells, and I think it, it backs up your point exactly, is you know, most of us these days spend thousands of hours a year practicing our typing, right? We, mm-hmm. we type and we type and we type and we type. But who gets any better at their typing? None of us. We're all at this plateau because we've reached this place of unconscious competence. And his point and your point is the learning place is a place of conscious incompetence. You're, you're uncomfortable, but you're, you're finding your edges and you're knowing that you're finding your edges and you're learning from that. Exactly right. And that's why, in a way, you know, we constantly talk about passion. We constantly talk about motivation and emotion. But, and and, and it's, it's obviously crucial to this sort of learning. That's why we have it. But um, it, it helps also to think of that as sort of the energy to push you over that edge. What's going to get you to be willing to endure that kind of discomforting feeling of staggering, stumbling, and reaching again and again and again and again? Well, the, the, the engine that's going to make you do that is love or, or interest or intense engagement, right. which is why you know passion is not sort of this optional state. It's not, it's not sort of this thing that, well, if you've got it, it's great. It's actually more of, more of a, an essential ingredient to this process, which is why so many of these talent hotbeds are really running on engines of engagement and love and unconscious um, motivation that that very deep. I imagine that's what uh, increases the resilience to be able to go through that kind of that learning process that you're forcing people to go down. Exactly, because it's not not logical to want to do, really. Really. I mean, is it really logical to want to spend, you know, every morning of your life pounding away on these uh, on some piano song or, or learning about the stock market as young Warren Buffett did? Yeah. Not logical, not normal. <laughs> but, but what drives that is this great, wonderful, irrational love for these things. And that's why we see, um, you know, not just in, in the faces of these talent hotbeds, that's why we see not just the Clint Eastwood expression, but also these you know, it's sort of enchantment um, feeling. It's enchantment with the everyday materials of, of, uh, of their craft. So, so let's talk about the second kind of core theme behind uh, the talent code, which is uh, deep practice was the first one. Ignition is the second. And I think we're moving into that territory when you start talking about the importance of passion. But what do you, what do you mean by, or what's the value of and the importance of ignition to make talent come through? Well, it is really the engine to drive the deep practice. You know, it's going to take thousands of hours to get good, and you need that engine there. And what I saw in the talent hotbeds, and again, what the science is underlying for us, is that this ignition does not arrive through someone giving you a speech. It does not arrive through, um, you know, uh, through, through, through normal means. It usually arrives, typically, when someone looks at someone and says, that is who I want to become. Right. Through an identity. It has to do with human identity. And, and there's a tremendous amount of fascinating research out there that shows how changes, slight changes in identity can ignite big changes in energy and motivation. Uh, and you can, by making a link of identity, increase unconscious effort massively. And that's what we see in these talent hotbeds. Um, you'll have one person succeed. A good example is in golf. In South Korea, there was one woman named Suri Pak who won – uh, major championship in 1998. Yeah. Well, 10 years later, there are 43 South Korean women on the LPGA tour. Now, their genes are not any different than 
South Korean golfers 20 years ago. Their culture hasn't really changed. But what changed was they had an identity they could link to. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they could Thousands of little girls looked at her and said, uh, that is who I want to be. Yeah. That's who I want to become. And it wasn't about um, anything but that, that very simple gaze, uh, staring essentially. And, and so that's what we also see in this talent hotbeds. Uh, we see these, these, this fuel that comes through the eyes, that comes from looking at people. And um, it, it sort of, you know, how do we apply that to our, to our lives? In a way, it, it makes you conscious of who's in your windshield. Um, you know, we each sort of live with a windshield of people in front of us and, um, there's an opportunity there by sort of curating our windshields and paying attention to, to who's in it and spending time staring at who we want to become to, um, make a change in the level of our ignition. You know, I'm just thinking that, uh, that maybe something like that's happening in Northern Ireland at the moment, seeing as they're having this kind of golf extravaganza with Rory, Rory McElroy and Darren, what's his name, succeeding in Masters. I'm like, I wonder if in 10 years' time we're going to see this next wave of Northern Ireland dominance in the golf. It wouldn't be a surprise. And we see it even now, um, you know, Tiger Woods, yeah. you know, 10 years ago was this incredible phenomenon. Well, now Tiger Woods is being beaten by all the kids he inspired. Right. You know? <laughs> So you have this, these, these sort of semi-predictable waves of talent arising from these places, um, and uh, you, can, you, know, you can almost set your watch. They're going to they're gonna come. The, the third and final section of the book is about master coaching, and uh, uh, that was a particular interest to me because you know, I think of the work that I do um, as coaching and the teaching I do, and actually I have some people who I coach in person. And um, so I was like, intrigued by the elements of, of the master coaching piece. And you actually set down four kind of virtues of the master coach, the matrix, perceptiveness, the GPS reflex, and theatrical honesty. So I'm wondering if we can just kind of unpick those four, because they're all kind of compellingly interesting titles that don't give much away. So for the people who are listening, like, what do you mean? What do you mean the matrix? <laughs> start, start us off. What's, what, what, master coaches have this ability to connect to the matrix, but what is that? You know, to, to I kept meeting the same people at these uh, at <laughs> right. these talent hotbeds, whether it was chess or or basketball or business, and they, they were these kind of fairly quiet people. Um, they were not sort of your fiery speech givers. They had these abilities, and they were the people who were the gardeners of talent, who really were the ones who I think helped the process grow. and And they had these four traits that you're talking about. And the first is, you know, I refer to as the matrix, which is. Basically, their ability to instantly connect in real time um, the action of the person that they're dealing with with what they should be doing. Mm. Uh, It's sort of they have such a deep knowledge of the subject matter, whether it's a tennis swing or the stock market or or anything or dance, to instantly when a person makes a gesture, makes an attempt, makes a reach, a struggle, they can instantly connect that struggle to what they should be doing. And they send a very short message usually, and that's what I refer to later as the GPS quality. They send a very short message to that person, correcting them, fixing them, telling them where to reach. And that process, that sort of conversation that went on between coach and and actor and then player um, over and over again, coach and participant, where the participant makes a gesture and the coach makes a slight, subtle guidance. And that, almost like a GPS you know, receiver leading you home, saying a little this way, a little to the right, a little left, turn left here, go straight, you found it. That's it. That's the move. Remember right. that. And you're home. That is the – that's really the, the core skill. When I talk about their, their other abilities like 
their perceptiveness, their ability to connect. A lot of these people end up, another trait that they have is kind of an emotional athleticism. Mm. They're able to make a very intense connection with someone, an emotional connection with someone in a very short amount of time. You know, I see the first 10 seconds you deal with someone, a lot of decisions are made about the relationships. Right. We unconsciously decide whether to trust someone in those first 10 seconds, whether we're going to listen, whether we're going to be open to them. And what I saw in the master coaches was an ability to maximize those first 10 seconds right. through, in their, through their eyes, through their humor, yeah. through their joke, through their flexibility, their emotional athleticism to forge that connection. Because if you don't have that, none of those GPS signals are going to get through. That's the first thing you get there. Um, and they also had what I refer to as kind of a theatrical honesty. They had the ability, they all were sort of ham bones in a way. <laughs> uh, actors, to deliver their point, they were willing to use anything, anything at their disposal to get their point across. Right. Bribery, you bet. They'll, they'll tuck $10 bills inside the cello if the person plays the right. If they'll... One, one, one coach I met was quite good at it. He would occasionally fake injuries to himself. He would limp around the tennis court in order to get the kid to engage, to get the person to pay attention. You know, right. these, these are ultimately human relationships. And so these were people, these master coaches were willing to do, and I call it a theatrical honesty because beneath the theatricalism is this honest relationship where they are trying to tell the truth about the performance to the person. Yeah. And, uh, the deeper truth is what matters. And this conversation um, that they would have as the person is building the skill, making the reaches, making the fixes, making the repetitions, the coach is the person alongside um, who, who through these virtues helps make that happen. Yeah, I love that. And I love the, the, the really strong theme in all of that is that these coaches have the ability to meet whoever they're coaching where they are, see them for who they are, and adjust the coaching that needs to be done to the person in front of them. So it's not a sort of, I have a generic approach. It's like, with this person, I push them hard. With this person, person I listen quietly and give an encouraging pat. You know, every person needs a different form of ability to connect with and stay at that, that level of deep practice. That's so true. John Wooden, the sort of legendary basketball mm-hmm. coach at UCLA, used to say, um, I promise, he would promise his team to, te- to treat them all differently. Right. So the most unfair thing I can do is treat you all the same, you know. And I think uh, that, that's that's a good coach, a good point that all coaches could uh, could remember. I uh, hate this question because I'm sure you've been asked it more than one time. But so, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I think it, it's a good question. Your talent, <laughs> having written the book, what, what have you been working on, and how what how have you deepened your own talent in in an area? Oh, a couple of different ways. One of them kind of pathetic, um, and, and one of them actually does relate. Uh, as as when I was working, uh, beginning work on this book, I thought, you know, well, you know, I should try to get talented at something. I should, right. uh, you know, I should, I should actually, I should actually do, which is a terrible idea for any writer. <laughs> we, we should be observers, right? We should be objective. We should never get involved. But I did, and I looked around and I decided, you know, I don't know if you recall this. this it actually was a commercial for Nike where Tiger Woods bounced a golf ball sort of juggled oh, yeah. on his sandwich over and over again. And he did it behind his back. He threw it up in the air and sort of caught it. And, and in the end of the commercial, after bouncing this and juggling it between his legs around his back and he, he flips up in the air and he, he hits it down the fairway. Yep. It's totally fantastic. It's totally seen? fantastic. I love that ad. So I decided I should try to learn to do that. And, <laughs> uh, and for a while I was, I was absolutely terrible. You know, right. I, I live, 
you know, at the time we were living full time in Alaska, um, the golf hotbed of Alaska. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't play that all that much golf, you know, growing up and still don't play about once a year. But, um, but as time went by, I, I actually was able, and I put a, a, a video of this on the, on the blog, on the talentcode.com, where I actually learned how to replicate the trick precisely, you know, 100%. And so that was um, kind of, you know, a tiny example, but still a way uh, that, you know, profoundly changed the way I look at this stuff. And when it came to the, comes to the writing um, part of it, you know, some of those same lessons ended up uh, applying, you know, uh, getting getting more comfortable on the edge, um, trying for this state of of kind of you know intensive reaching and repetition. Um, it's definitely made me more more conscious. And if there is a downside, is that you, when you become sort of too alert to this process, it can be a little bit paralyzing. You know, you need that's why the passion part of it remains kind of the X factor and the uh, the part that is most in the end, still mysterious to me, uh, you know, what causes someone to say, that's who I want to be? What causes that? And, and to give a lot of respect um, and attention to that ingredient in particular in our lives, uh, I think it's a place that we can easily overlook. And yet it's the, it's the part that, you know, powers most of what we do. You know, why do you do what you do? Why do most of us do what we do? It's, it's mysterious and it's, um, it's fascinating. I uh, I love the story about the golf. I'm thinking that you just start. Every, you know, you only play golf once a year. You start every round with that trick. That wins you the first three holes. So they're really so damn intimidated by you that they don't know what's happening until they find out that you're actually not that good. I'm not. Like, that good. It's perfect. I have to walk away immediately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I'm on a high point now. I'm, I'm I I pulled a, I pulled a muscle in my leg. I have to go back to the bar. So long, everybody. Right. Um, Dan, if people, I'm, I know you, people can find the talent code in you know any good bookstore near you, virtually or otherwise. Uh, if they want to learn more about you, your blog, your work, where do they find you on the web? I guess it'd be uh, thetalentcode.com would be the best place to to start. You know, we've got a we've got a you know an ongoing blog and a few things on there. So that yeah, that'd be the best. Thank you so much for the, your time today. It's been a great interview. It, I, I'll say it again. It's a, a terrific book. You know, I read a lot of books and then I pass them um, on to friends or I pass them, I, I, I t- you know, give them away to people and then there are a few I keep on my shelves. And yours is one of the books I keep on my shelf because I think it's got a real wisdom to it and I kind of go back and reread it and relearn this stuff to it. And that's a, that's a rare thing. So thanks for that. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.